0: testimony to God's faithfulness, to his mission. Welcome to Aletheia Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. As you can tell by the songs that we are singing this morning, that we are in the throes of the Christmas season. Um, Florida even decided to get on the action this year by sending some cold weather our way. Um, I left to escape this from the cold white north, and yet here we are all freezing outdoors this morning because 2020, right? So anyway, it is good to see you guys this morning. I, I'm excited. I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, traditionally, uh, last Sunday marked for the ch- the church worldwide the beginning of a season known as Advent. Uh, the church celebrates that yearly uh, a- as like a four-week period leading up to Christmas. And Advent is a time where the church traditionally um, prepares itself to celebrate Christmas and remember the coming of Jesus. Uh, We're not doing a traditional Advent series uh, this, this season, although we have in past years. But the next several weeks, we are going to do something a little different than what we normally do. If you've spent time with us, you know that Traditionally, what we do as a church is we just study books of the Bible together. We we just plow through them verse by verse, line by line, and we study these books of uh, the Bible together. And so, what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to look at some common Christmas carols that tend to be sung each year around Christmas time by the church and those not in the church. And then we're gonna go to scripture and we're gonna look at the story behind those words and lyrics. And I just wanna mention that the idea behind this series, we deserve to give a little bit of credit to Moody Church out in Illinois and Pastor Erwin uh, Lutzer. This is something that they did years and years and years ago. Uh, So we're thankful to their ideas and work uh, for what they've shared through their church and their ministry over the years. Uh, But that's what we're gonna be doing. We're gonna be breaking down some carols over the next several weeks. And here's my hope, that, that as a church, We'll, we'll learn more about why we sing these songs and we'll maybe have a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for them. Uh, but really more importantly, what I hope it'll do is it'll cause us to reflect more heavily and cause a deeper worship to arise in our own hearts in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. And so our carol this morning is Silent Night, so we sung that earlier this morning. It's a beautiful, beautiful carol. Um, I, I remember vividly as a child uh, going to uh, my grandmother's every Christmas Eve. Uh, we had this tradition where the entire extended family would come together and we would open gifts on Christmas Eve together as families. And so uh, as, a, as a young child, I remember, you know, you're really, really excited. You think Christmas is all about the gifts you're going to get. And so you're super stoked about what you're going to get. And so uh, before we would go to my grandmother's, though, to open up gifts and have a late dinner, we would go to her little country rural church and go to the Christmas Eve service there. And, you know, you're never pumped about that as a kid. You're like, great. Thanks a lot, mom and dad. You know, I have to sit here dressed up. It's miserable because this is an old small church, so it's cold in here. And, you know, I just want presents and to hang out with my cousins. And here I am sitting and being told I need to be quiet during the service. Thanks a lot, Mom. Right? But one thing I would never forget is that every year, you know, I I listened to probably dozens of of sermons in that church. Uh, Don't remember any of them. Don't remember what the band was doing. But I do remember this scene at the end of every single Christmas Eve service at my grandmother's church. The pastor would finish doing uh, whatever he was doing and then they would turn all the lights out in the church and he would light one singular candle off of uh, the altar and he would come down and stand before the church and then the choir director would begin singing Silent Night and he would walk to the front and he would begin lighting, the, we would all be holding candles and he'd begin lighting the candles and then we would start lighting one another's candles. And by midway through the second verse of Silent Night, the entire room was illuminated because of the candles that were lit right, by that one singular candle off of the altar. And one of the things the pastor would say, right, after we had finished singing that song is that that time was supposed to represent the light of Christ entering into the world on that silent night some 2,000 years ago. And subsequently, we are lights for Christ thereafter, taking our light out into the world. And it had this powerful imagery that even though I, as as not being a follower of Jesus, had this beautiful kind of, picture given to me of the magnitude of what was going on that night, 2000 years ago, as Christ was born in Bethlehem. And so I think the backstory to this carol is actually really, really cool. Uh, in 1818, uh, there was a band of actors who were performing in towns throughout the Austrian Alps. And on December 23rd, they arrived in Oberndorf, a village near Salzburg, where they were to reenact the story of Christ's birth in this small church of St. Nicholas. And unfortunately, The organ in that church wasn't working at the time. And so, uh, and it would not be prepared in time for their Christmas service. And and some versions of this story tell that there had been some mice that had eaten through the organ pipes and that's why it wasn't working. But for whatever reason, the church's organ wasn't working. And so they met in the home of somebody that was inside of the church To have this play that of this group that was traveling around and what they were doing is at this christmas presentation the actors presented a christmas drama drama in this home about the events seen in matthew and luke of christ's birth and one of the assistant pastors for the church at saint nicholas a guy by the name of joseph moore was in this meditative, contemplative mood after after he had seen these actors kind of put on this performance uh, in this home. And so he was in this village. He was walking back to his house and he decided to take a longer route than he normally would take. And so he walked up into a hillside that's kind of set above the village. And as he's overlooking the village, he looks down on this kind of peaceful, uh, snow-covered village in the Austrian Alps and as he kind of stands there in silence, looking over this wintry night in his in his uh, village, he sees this Christmas card like scene, and his thoughts started to remind him of this poem that he had written a couple years earlier, surrounded around the birth of Jesus. All right, and I'm gonna butcher the German, uh, so you can correct me here in just a second, Charlotte. stille Nacht, close enough. stille Nacht, better. Okay, thank you, Charlotte our resident German, right? Correcting my horrific Southern slang, right? In a, in a foreign language, right? So he he wrote this poem, right? That we entitled Silent Night. And it was centered around what he imagined, right? The birth of Jesus to be like on that night with the the angels appearing before the shepherds as Jesus was born in the manger in Bethlehem about how the angels had announced the birth of this long-awaited Messiah to the shepherds on a hillside, much like where he was standing. And so he decided that those words might make a good carol for the congregation to sing the following evening at their Christmas Eve service. The only problem is they didn't have an instrument to be able to play because the organ didn't work in the church. And so he went to the church organist, a guy by the name of Franz Gruber, and Gruber had only a few hours to come up with a melody which could be sung with the guitar. However, by that evening he had done so, and they composed uh, this musical setting to the poem that he had written. And even though the church organ was inoperable, They now had a Christmas carol that could be sung without the organ with their church. And on Christmas Eve, this little congregation in Oberndorf heard this song and sang it for the first time. And a couple weeks later, a well-known musician and organ builder from Germany arrived to fix the organ. And after he had finished fixing it, he asked um, Gruber to... Play something on the organ to make sure that it was working properly, and this is the song that Gruber chose to play. Well, the or, the guy who repaired the organ, right, ended up taking the music back with him, right. It ended up being put to song, right. And a a, a band of uh, famous, well traveling singers during that time called the Rainers and the Strassers heard it and started putting it into their repertoire, where they performed it in front of the king of Russia and the chancellor or the king of Germany at the time. And some 50 years after it was composed in this little village, it arrived in the US, being first sung in Germany in New York City and then later translated into English and is now sung worldwide by the church to celebrate the coming of Jesus some 2000 years ago. And if you stop and pause and think about those lyrics that you sang earlier as we sang that song together as a church, right? If, it, if it's anything like it is for me, right, it probably conjures up memories for you as well because it's something that we consistently do this time of year as we sing that song. And however, while this song depicts what is going on, right, on that hillside outside of Bethlehem uh, 2,000 years ago, I think something that often gets missed around Christmas time for all of us is the bigger picture of what was going on in the throne room of heaven, what was going on cosmically, Right, and not just what was going on in the little town of Bethlehem. Because while Bethlehem may have been peaceful as the angels arrived to announce the birth of Jesus, Jesus not sure who that guy was, <laughs> cosmically, there was a battle raging between Satan and heaven. And John shares with us in Revelation chapter 12, Right, exactly what is going on in that moment. And and that's where our text is going to take us this morning because I want to take some time this morning for us as a church to remember not just the quiet entry of Jesus into the world, but the reality of what was taking place as God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. All right, so to turn to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to go through that entire chapter this morning. Do not expect a robust understanding of eschatology after you leave here this morning, although God is a premillennial, uh, post-trib rapture holder. For those of you guys that love eschatology, I see some people shaking their heads because there's already disagreement amongst us, right? One thing you need to know about eschatology, Jesus comes back and wins, Right? We can disagree on the rest, but Jesus comes back and wins. Okay, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse one. Look at that with me, and let's start breaking some of this down. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And on another side appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, so think about this scene and all that it represents as we're reading here in Revelation 12. Remember, first and foremost, that when you're reading the book of Revelation, this is apocalyptic literature. And so things are going to be cryptic. Sometimes there's going to be imagery that's describing something that's known. Sometimes it's going to be describing things that are not unknown. And so it's always a little dicey as you're working through the book of Revelation to fully be able to comprehend everything that you're reading and understanding. And this is a vision that John is having, um, you know, towards the end of his life about what God has done and what God is going to do in Jesus's return. And so if you look at verse 1, Right, he, he receives this vision and he sees a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head are a crown of 12 stars. And so it's important at least as we're reading through this vision to try to understand who are the various characters right, or people that we see in Revelation 12 because it'll help us try to understand a little bit more about what John is seeing and how it relates to the narrative of what we know has happened to Israel and the church. And so the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. There is some debate amongst the church on who exactly this is and what exactly it is. But to the best of my understanding, I think it's best to try to understand this as being God's people. Right, being first and foremost Israel, and and one of the, the the keys or the clues to that would be would be the 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 twelve uh, stars that are in the crown on her head, understanding that that th- these this represents God's people given uh, at, at, at over time, right, to following after God, and that the promise was going to come through God's people, that ultimate promise in the Old Testament being fulfilled through God's people, uh, but then after that right understanding that the church right is then grafted into god's people post christ and so the, so it would represent israel but it would also represent god's people at large and the church would be there and so what we see is we see this woman and we see that she's about to give birth we see the culmination of the promises of the old testament kind of coming to fruition that's what we're seeing here in revelation 12 but then there's this other ca- character right the dragon waiting to devour this child as it's waiting to be born And the dragon represents Satan, as you could probably imagine, right? But I think what's interesting, right, is think about that this child is so important that the dragon is sitting there waiting to devour this child the moment that it's born. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, this should not come as a surprise to you, right? Turn back to Genesis chapter three with me. One of the things I, I, I think that, frequently gets lost because um, when, we, when we study Scripture, we, we, you know, we study it in different books, we understand it in different chapters and verses, and we fail to kind of realize that although the Bible has dozens of authors and many books written over uh, thousands of years, right, the, the Scripture as it's given to us is one redemptive story kind of unfolding and being told to us of how God is going to rescue His people and has rescued His people. And if you look back at Genesis 3, if you remember what happens there, right? Adam and Eve sin and transgress and are not following God the way that he asked them to follow him in Eden. And by the time you get to the verse we're going to look at here, you're going to see that God has shown up in the garden and sees the sin and rebellion that's taken hold. And this is what he says to Satan, the serpent, for deceiving Eve and leading her astray. He says this, that the offspring or the seed of the one will crush the head of the serpent. I actually think that that's a better translation, that the head of the serpent will be crushed. But what we see in that curse as God is talking to Satan is this promise that God is gonna rescue humanity through the seed of Eve and that Satan will ultimately be defeated and destroyed for rebelling against God and leading humanity to rebel against God as well. We see that very, very early on in the narrative of the Old Testament. And if you read through the Old Testament after that, what you see is this redemptive arc of Satan consistently trying to destroy and devour the seed, right? From then later crushing his head. Let me give you some examples of this, of this redemptive arc that you see through the Old Testament, right? If you've ever read the story of Cain and Abel, right? Abel loves God gives him an acceptable sacrifice and so Satan believes that Abel is the seed that is promised through Eve and so he twists Cain and inspires Cain to kill Abel but what we learn later on is that another child is born to Adam and Eve and that child is Seth and that the seed actually goes through Seth's line then if you continue right through the book of Genesis you'll see that the world, consistently falls into sin over and over again to where the whole world is wicked and God pronounces judgment on it through a flood. And Satan, once again, thinks that he's going to destroy the seed of mankind and that the curse is not gonna come to fruition. And yet God preserves the line through Noah and his family in the ark. After the flood, Right? you see Noah's children break out Right, They begin to uh, have children, have their offspring, and that there is more and more rebellion towards God. There's paganism, there's idolatry, there's worship of false gods. And as we get further on in Genesis, we see, though, God is faithful and calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, calls him to the promised land, and there he makes the covenant promise with Abraham to be his god and that Abraham's uh, offspring will be his children and that through ultimately through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the seed continues. Fast forward to God's people being held captive in Israel. I mean excuse me in Egypt. And as they as God promises to send them out, right? He sends Moses. Right? And Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, right, Moses disobeys God, right, doesn't listen to him. And God says to Moses, you will not be the one to lead these people into Israel. And you see Satan thinking that he's one yet again. And then yet God raises up Joshua and Joshua leads God's people into the promised land and the tribe of Judah, which is the line that it was supposed to come through, is led into Israel and the seed is preserved. Fast through, through, forward through the period of the judges where you get to the nation of Israel, struggling yet again, being at war consistently with the Assyrians and the nations around them. And they clamor before Samuel, God needs to give us a king. We need a king like the other nations around us. And God says to them, I am your king. And like, no, we wanna be like the other nations around us. And so God gives them what they want. And he gives them Saul. And Saul is a horrible, horrible, horrible king. He was clinically insane, if you read through 1 Samuel. And as Saul leads God's people, he is a wicked and evil king. And yet you see Satan sitting there again. I've devoured God's people. I've done what I need to do. I've distracted. I've created issues. And then God anoints the son of Jesse, David, to be the king. And through David, The seed is preserved. And through David, the promise of a king whose kingdom will be everlasting is promised. And as we move through the Old Testament, we see God preserving the seed time and time and time again until we get to Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, notice that, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no End. And Mary said to the angel, "How will this be, since I am a virgin?" And the angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow, overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God." Right? We see the culmination of this promise all the way back in Genesis chapter three redemptively being unveiled throughout the Old Testament as God has consistently preserved this promise and this curse that he has placed on Satan for his deception, coming to fruition by the time we get to Luke chapter one, ultimately finding its fulfillment in this child who is to be born to this virgin woman, Mary, Jesus. Jesus is the seed who will crush the head of Satan. He will reign forever. And what is happening in Bethlehem on Christmas night is the culmination of thousands of years of a battle going on between God and Satan. And as we read and we, even as we sing the carol Silent Night, we are celebrating the fact that God keeps his promise and God wins. And so if we go back to John's vision in Revelation 12, we see that the dragon is waiting to devour the child. And if you are familiar with the gospel narratives, right? It wasn't as if when you get to Luke chapter one, that, that Satan's desire to devour the child ends. The gospels are riddled with, op, with Satan trying to take opportunities to devour and discredit Jesus and his ministry. In Matthew chapter two, Satan inspires Herod to have all male babies around Bethlehem killed. And an angel appears to Joseph and tells him to flee with Jesus and Mary to Egypt. And so they do. And and the attempt to devour Jesus is thwarted. God protects Jesus. They flee to Egypt. And eventually Jesus returns with his family. And around age 30, Jesus begins his public ministry. And he's baptized by John the Baptist, who was the forerunner in the spirit of Elijah that was promised in the Old Testament that would come before the Messiah came. And then Jesus, as he comes up out of the water, the, the spirit descends upon him and God, a voice from heaven cries out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says immediately, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted like Moses and like the Israelites. And Satan attempts to devour Jesus and turn him from God. And yet Jesus endures and resists Satan the way that Moses and the Israelites were incapable of doing. And then Satan flees. Satan then attempts to discredit Jesus's ministry through the Pharisees. For example in Matthew chapter 9 verse 34, right? The Pharisees actually end up saying that Jesus's power for ministry comes from Satan himself. And yet Jesus thwarts that by explaining to them that a house divided against itself cannot stand and that it can't logically be true. And then finally you come towards the end of the gospel narratives. Satan's final attempt to devour the seed and avoid the curse. He entices Judas to betray Jesus. And at the crucifixion, as Jesus breathes his last, you can almost envision Satan celebrating, it's been done. We've killed God's anointed. But look at verse five in Revelation 12 with me again. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The resurrection. Three days later, Jesus breaks forth from the tomb For 40 days, he walks with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. And that's where we're at now at this point in John's vision where he sees, well, Satan in one final attempt, attempted to devour the seed, the promised one of what was going on here. And yet God was faithful. He raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus has ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. He's been caught up to God and his throne. And it says in verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Remember, this is the church now at this point where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Don't get weird about that day number, by the way. Don't get weird about that. You'll start predicting the end of the earth. It's real weird. But John's vision is of the redemptive story of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And then when you get to verse seven, the narrative is gonna flip a little bit. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now I wanna pause there and just say like, some of you guys might be sitting there thinking like, wait, Satan was in heaven? Originally, yes, Satan was an angel and and in heaven and he rebelled against God. And we know from like the book of Job, for example, that Satan was still allowed into the throne room to speak with God and to tempt and create issues. amongst God's people. But at this point, what we're now seeing is post Christ's resurrection, Michael and the other angels have defeated Satan cosmically in the heavens once and for all and he's been cast down to earth. And uh uh-oh, we're on earth. But he's been cast down to earth. And then he says this in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So you get to verse seven, you see that there's this cosmic battle taking place and Satan is thrown down out of the heavens. And as, as he's here on earth, we know, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know what awaits Satan in Revelation chapter 20. He's finally defeated by the time you get to Revelation 20. But for now, he's persecuting the church. That's what John is seeing. John is seeing both currently in his lifetime and and out ahead of him, nothing but persecution for the church because Satan is here as the prince of the power of the air, seeking to discredit and disrupt and destroy the work of the seed. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, what you are seeing right here in this is that Satan is on this earth attempting to rob you of joy in Christ. This is the time we are living in. Jesus has won and he will return, but currently we face persecution from the world and from Satan. And you may be asking, like, how? Wait a minute, if Jesus has won, how could Satan possibly create disruption? How could he possibly devour, right, what the seed has done? Well, look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Look at what he calls Satan. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And then look at what he does. Who accuses them day and night before our God. One of the many terms used to describe Satan throughout Scripture is the word accuser. And here's what God is trying to get across to us as we read his word and try to ponder through this and understand it. When we sin, right? If we understand James chapter one, right? When we sin, right? James says that we are uh, enticed by our own desires, but that that there is a lure there that, that kind of ignited the temptation per se. Right? So what the point that James is kind of making is Satan throws out a lure. If you've ever been fishing, right, you may have used a lure before. right, And you throw, you cast your, your line out into the water and the lure is supposed to entice what is already true of the fish that it wants to eat. And then once the fish goes to bite the lure, there's a hook there and the fish is hooked and you reel it in. Sin works much the same way. Right, Satan will cast a lure before us And it will feel enticing and our own desires will draw us towards that and we will choose to sin and we'll bite the hook. And then Satan has us reeled in. Now, here's here's how this works for a believer, right? Because the gospel says that when Christ died on the cross, he died in our place to satisfy the wrath of God that he rose again to offer us new life and to be adopted into the family of God. Right? That, is, that is what we see there, that, that Revelation chapter 12, verses five and six, that that's what we're seeing going on there. But then, then you and I still very much have to exist in the world around us. And we may believe that Christ has died for us and that and that his work on the cross and his life, death, burial, and resurrection were sufficient to save us before God. But guess what happens for Christians after they accept and believe that they still sin, right? There's a heresy in some amongst the church that teach something called sinless perfection, but we don't believe in that, right? You, you, whether you're a believer here this morning or not, you still sin and you will still sin until the day of glory, right? I've been a follower of Jesus now for close to 16 years. I still sin consistently, I see a pattern of redemption and sanctification going on in my life, but I still sin consistently. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She would be happy to tell you. And here is what Satan is attempting to do to the church here and now. As we're lured away and as we give in to sin, even as followers of Christ, the moment we give in to that temptation and sin the accusations start. Some of you guys are going to resonate with this. Are you given to sin? And it sounds really great. And the moment you give it to sin, this is what you hear. You aren't really a Christian. You don't understand what God's done for you. You don't really love God. You just pretend to love Jesus. Here's a famous one. You're unworthy of God's love. How could you do that? How could you sin knowing what Christ did for you? You're unworthy of his love. You have no excuses. Look at you. And the accusations come day and night, as John tells us from this vision. Guys, here's the thing. Because I think probably every one of us here this morning that are in Christ can relate with what I just said. Here's the reality. Satan's right. The accuser is is correct. That's that's one of the the weird things about what the enemy does. He takes the truth and he twists it with lies or doesn't give the whole truth. The reality is is that Kevin is unworthy of God's love. The reality is, is that I consistently choose to rebel against my savior who gave his life for me. The reality is, is I'm not a good Christian. I don't know what that means, but I'm not one. The reality is, is I am consistently unworthy of God's love. But the gospel says that everyone's unworthy of God's love. God loves us not because of our works, but because of Jesus Christ's life and work on our behalf. That's why Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's not about your performance. It's about the seeds. It's not about your life. It's about Christ's. And so when you hear the words of the accuser, Christian, hear me. He's right, but he's also wrong. He's right that you're unworthy and yet God loves you in Christ anyway. And this is why in verse 11 and 12, John says this, that the angels rejoice saying, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. They didn't conquer Satan by Michael's power. They didn't conquer him by their their collective group of being two thirds versus one third of, of Satan's army. No, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death, right? What he's saying there is, that Satan was defeated not by the power of the angels, but by the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And he says this then in verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows that Revelation 20 is coming. Guys, this is, Right here is what Christmas is all about. We are sinful and broken, but Jesus is a great Savior, far better than your worst. Don't give in to the accusations of the enemy. You weren't saved by your works. You weren't saved by your performance. You weren't saved by your holiness and obedience. You were saved by the work of Jesus Christ, the promised seed from Genesis three. Your work is what is commonly termed as self-sufficiency and it's not good enough, right? Charles Spurgeon says this, and I thought it went beautifully, but with what I was seeing as I tracked through this, he says, do not become self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is Satan's net where he catches men like poor, silly fish and destroys them. Be not self-sufficient. The way to grow strong in Christ is to become weak in yourself. God pours no power into man's heart till man's power is all poured out. Live then daily a life of dependence on the grace of God. Guys, the Christian's life is marked not by how well you're doing, how much more obedient you're becoming. I'm not saying, by the way, those things do matter, right? Don't walk away here. I'm not antinomian for those of you that know that that, that term. But what I am saying is that your salvation and position in Christ has never been dependent upon your performance, don't listen to the accusations of the enemy. As Satan accuses you, agree with him. And then tell him that he has been conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony, and that you love not your life even unto death, because you have died and are hidden in Christ. Then if you want, remind him of his fate, because it's coming. A day of reckoning is coming where Jesus will return and set all things right. And Satan will be cast into the lake of fire because he's been conquered by the blood of the lamb. And if you look at verses 13 through 17, it says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, stop focusing on dates. You'll get crazy. But the church is going to be pursued by Satan. Just remember that. And the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the stand of the sea. Satan's remaining time will be spent pursuing the church, accusing the church, distracting the church, and attempting to rob those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ of our joy in him. But look at the promise in verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. For a time, God promises to protect his church. He promises to nourish his church. He promises to take care of his church. Satan will and is making war with you, whether you realize it or not this morning. He is. I know, I know it's weird. We're in 2020. We, we live in a culture that's extremely naturalistic. Everything has a natural cause. It can be dis- described by things. There's no concept anymore in our cultural psyche, really, of the metaphysical. But scripture teaches us that there's more to them than what the eye sees. And that Satan and demons are real and are seeking to devour and distract and destroy and rob of joy. And as we head into Christmas, as Christmas is coming, I think it's important to take a step back and not always just think about that silent night where all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy, infant, tender and mild. As we think through those things, we only have this peaceful picture of Christmas. And that's not the whole story, guys. There was a cosmic battle that took place to secure your salvation, and that battle continues and rages some 2,000 years later for us as his church. I talked about this last week that that it's not just cultural, right? I mean, Paul says to Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight. Meaning as the church, we need to understand that we are going to be in battle for the sake of the gospel. And guys, look, I realize this. 2020 has been tough for many of us. It has been a tough, tough season. In my 34, almost 35 years of life, I have not experienced the amount and weightiness of a season that has lasted seemingly this long and has been this difficult. We are constantly having loss thrown in our face, fear thrown in our face, despair thrown in our face, COVID thrown in our face. And that's not to mention all the normal things that come with living as well, like sin and distractions and a culture that's moving increasingly more hostile towards Christians. There's a war going on, guys. And Satan would love nothing more than to to devour your joy and what Christ has done for you. But there's a cure and a remedy to that. Right? If you go back and look at verse 12, like look at what the angels announce. Therefore, look at that next word. Rejoice. The cure? You want to say, how do I overcome sin and temptation? How do I, how do I fight this battle? How do I stand in the midst of uh a a world that is adversarial towards the church and seeking to devour my joy in Christ. Worship. Worship Jesus. That is what the Christmas season is supposed to bring about in all of us. A deep abiding worship of Jesus. The blood of the lamb. We're about to take communion and I tell you guys this regularly, right? we take communion here every week at Alathia Church. I know that's not very Baptist of us, but we take communion here every Sunday. And the reason we do that is because God has asked us to frequently reflect and remember the Lord's Supper. where we reflect on the victory that Jesus had secured for us and that 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 bread and juice represent for us Christ's flesh and blood poured out for us that reconciled us to God and satisfied his wrath for our rebellion and sin. And I tell you guys consistently that if you're a Christian that... I desire for you to take communion not as an act of penance where you're in sackcloth and ashes and repenting, although you should repent before you take communion, but that communion is an act of worship where you are identifying with the body and blood of Christ poured out for you. You are recognizing that what he has done is sufficient for you and you are worshiping him and thanking him for what he has done for you that satan has been defeated. And so this is what I'm going to ask for you guys to do during our time of reflection and communion this morning. Right as you take communion, will you take a moment and just ponder those lyrics from Silent Night. Right how how quiet it was Right, how there was this, this beauty of the angels right, announcing the birth of Christ that the seed had finally arrived. But will you also reflect on the cosmic battle that took place for your salvation and the struggle taking place today as we seek to be faithful and rejoice in God's faithfulness because he is faithful. And then after you take communion, the band is gonna lead us in a song. And will you stand up and do exactly what the angels ask us to do in verse 12, which is to rejoice and worship because that is what Christmas is supposed to bring about in all of us, a worship and all of Christ. And we're gonna sing my favorite song right now. I would even go so far as to call it a hymn sung by City of Light. It's called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And there's all these beautiful lyrics throughout that song as they sing about the beauty of what Christ has done. But the chorus goes like this. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christmas is a season where At the incarnation, as Jesus entered the world for us, he secured for us a salvation that we could not secure for ourselves. Guys, Jesus has finished the work. I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I am worthy of God's wrath. But Jesus has saved me and rescued me from myself. Cling to him. Cling to his testimony. Worship him in this season. Don't get distracted by the presence in your family who's going to drive you crazy if you're going to be around them. But cling to Jesus. And as we cling to him together, may we worship him all the more. And see a greater worship of Jesus in both our own hearts, and our own lives, in the lives of our church, and hopefully in those around us that don't know him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are both the lion and the lamb who took away the sins of the world. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who make up Alathea Church. God, will you grant to us a greater realization of the magnitude of your love for us in Jesus Christ? And then, Lord, in that, will you create in us a greater worship of you where that is what we are known for? May we be known for a deep abiding love for you and as we sing that that song this morning may our hope be only found in you god i love you thank you for this church i love them and i know you do as well and i ask this all in jesus name